Clayton Schmidt, or Clay, as he likes to be called, was appointed the Arthur DeCryder Christ Church of Oak Brook Chair of Preaching at Fuller Theological Seminary back in 2000. In his tenure at the seminary, he has published several books in the areas of worship, preaching, and church music. In addition to being a professor of preaching, Clay is also a pastor and an accomplished musician. As a composer, he has commissioned he has been commissioned to write hymns and choral works honoring the anniversaries of several churches, and he has also composed choral works in honor of the personnel aboard two of our U.S. Navy aircraft carriers. Prior to coming to his position at Fuller, Clay served for 13 years as a pastor in an evangelical Lutheran church in America, and then he, before that, taught for two years at Duke Divinity School. Clay is a native of northern Wisconsin, which explains his passion for fly fishing, skiing, woodworking, and of course, the Green Bay Packers. <laughs> he is married to California native Carol, who is an attorney, and they are the proud parents of two college-age children. It's great to have Clay back with us again. He was here a couple of years ago. He's been a regular Summer Lights featured preacher, and so I hope you will join me in welcoming the Christ Church of Oak Brook Chair of Preaching at Fuller Theological Seminary, the Reverend Dr. Clayton Schmidt. Thank you, John. Thank you very much, John. Before I begin the, the sermon and before I read the text, I just want to remind some of you who may be new or, or not around as long as others that there's a very strong connection between Christ Church of Oak Brook and Fuller Seminary. Um, your, our current board of directors is a member of your congregation, Dave Bure, and your former pastor and your current pastor both are or were uh, members of our board of trustees. So not only is there this connection between my particular position and, and the seminary and the church, but there's also this stronger connection. So it is always a great delight for me to come back and be with you here at Christ Church. It feels in some ways like coming home for me. I've been here a number of times over the years, and I really appreciate John. You're welcome. I'll say just a word about the preaching department at Fuller because that's where one of the stronger connections is between your congregation and the seminary. The preaching department now has four full-time members, and with them we teach and prepare about 150 to 200 master's-level students to, to teach them how to preach as they go out into ministry. We teach, them, uh, we teach that number every year, and then we have some regional campuses which teach another uh, train another 50 to 75 people. So Fuller Seminary is really heavily involved in the training of pastors for the church and preachers for the church. We also have started in the last couple of years a PhD program in homiletics or preaching, and uh, we're, we've got a thriving program there as well, largely due to the generosity of this congregation, so we're very grateful. And then uh, Fuller is a very entrepreneurial kind of place, so they allow me to do some, some things that that might be a little more creative. And one of the things we're working on now is what we're calling the Global Preaching Initiative, which is uh, 
a group of pastors and scholars from around the world who are trying to create preaching resources to train and equip people around the world who are involved in this tremendous growth of the church in the two-thirds world. Uh, but they do so largely without theological training, and our goal is to help them uh, be well prepared for that. And if anyone would like to talk more about that after the service, I'd be delighted to talk to you. But especially today, I'm glad to be here to share the Word of God. And the Word today comes from Matthew, the 22nd chapter. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him, tested Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in all of the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbors as yourselves. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. And he said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. The word of the Lord. Dear friends in Christ, grace and peace to you from God, our Heavenly Father, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is one of those texts that shows us just exactly how Jewish the story of Jesus is. The Jews have historically loved to debate. They have loved contradictions. They have loved getting into arguments. In fact, they even love arguing with God. One of the great Jewish images of faithfulness is an angry fist raised toward heaven. I was at a conference a few years ago when there was a Jewish rabbi speaking to help us understand the Jewish way of thinking. And he told us us this little story. There was a rabbi to whom two members of the synagogue came with, an, with a problem. The first one says, I have sold Abraham a cow, and he owes me for it. Isn't that right, rabbi? And the rabbi says, you are correct. And then Abraham says, yes, but I've already paid Samuel for the cow, so I don't owe him anything further. Isn't that right, rabbi? You are correct, the rabbi said. And the rabbi's wife, overhearing this, said, she takes him aside and says, Rabbi, they can't both be right. And the rabbi says to her, Ah, Golda, such wisdom. You too are correct. <laughs> it's hard to get your mind around some of these things. It's hard to, get, get, hard to get your mind around some of these things that we read in the scriptures. And this is one of those places. And so we have the Pharisees coming to test Jesus, which is what they always liked to do. They were trying to safeguard the faith. That was their job. And they feel an obligation to test out his strange teachings. And so they come to test Jesus. And it's no surprise that the Pharisees want to go a few rounds with Jesus because, after all, this is what Jews love to do. And so 
They take up this dispute. It's a form of entertainment with them. Have you ever known anyone like that? Someone who just loved to argue for the sake of arguing? And if we believe in the God of the Jews, as we do, then perhaps we can draw from this story the realization that God is up for a little dispute. God is actually open to questions, to challenges, to disputations. And there's a lot in modern life that leads, that leads the seeker or the believer to want to pick a bone with God, isn't there? Think of those things. If God created all things in the universe, then why in the world did he create such difficult people to deal with? And why does cancer kill so many people? And why can't God simply make it rain in Somalia and end the drought? We can't do that. God can do that. Why doesn't God care enough to do that? Why is life so hard? Shouldn't the life of faith offer a few advantages? Shouldn't there be some benefit or profit from being a believer? Why does God seem so absent all the time? And then there are some very, very large issues in the world for which the fault seems simply to fall directly on God's shoulders. Think about that unending strife in Palestine that we hear about every day on the news. And it all, be, it all came about because the daughters of Abraham and the sons of Abraham, descendants of Isaac and Ishmael, have been set upon the hot sand to battle for centuries over the promised land. God did that, didn't God? Now, if God hadn't made it so difficult for Abraham in, in the promise of descendants, making him wait till he and his wife were 100 years old to have descendants... It might not have happened that way. Wouldn't it have been a sufficient miracle if, if God had said, I'll make you wait until you're 75 years old to have descendants? Then perhaps Abraham would not have run off with his slave to have his descendants through her line. So here we have then, after all these years, apparently, precisely according to God's plan, two nations, two sibling races set on a course for historic and constantly recurring conflict. I think it feels okay to blame God for that one. I don't get it. We might want to blame God or put God to the test with some pretty tough logic sometimes. Now, one of the things we learn from this story in Matthew is that Jesus is not one to run away from a confrontation. He always faces his adversaries, he meets the challenge, and he provides as good and honest an answer as anyone possibly could. We might assume that it is wrong for us to dare to challenge God. But if Jesus is any indication, it seems that God is really okay with that. It seems that God is all right with our asking serious questions and holding God to the test. In this particular section of Matthew, there are five or six stories of confrontation with Jesus. It's sort of condensed right here in the book of Matthew. They're constantly coming, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, always trying to catch up Jesus, to test him, to test out his theology. And so perhaps arguing with God or putting God to the test is not such a bad thing. Maybe, in fact, maybe... This is actually one way of having faith. Maybe asking God these hard questions 
is a way to demonstrate our faith and to help it grow. In this story, the Pharisees seem to have the upper hand. They are the experts. They want to challenge Jesus. They want to test him. But they could not, they learn, dispute with Jesus and win. And when we dispute with God, when we ask God these tough questions, we also understand we can't possibly win. There's no way we can get the other upper hand. But we do learn through the process of asking God some angry questions, the limits of our own logic, as well as our place in relation to God. God is the creator of all the universe. We are simply creatures. We hold some of the questions, but God holds all the answers. And God holds all the cards. And getting to know that is the beginning of belief. Getting to know that God will hold all the answers is learning to believe. So isn't it right then? Isn't it right for us to go to God with hard questions and expect some answers? And doesn't God actually seem to like it when we are that engaged with the faith? Our text says we should love God with our whole heart and mind and soul. What would that mean? How could you love God with your whole mind if you don't engage your reason and your logic in seeking the answer to some tough questions? Of course, we know that God will put us to the test as well. In fact, it is in the time of our own testing that we most want to hear answers from God. It is the moment when we are most challenge ourselves that we want to put God to the test. We see all of this going on in the world, the strife between nations, the unending spiraling violence that springs from the Middle East that is transported around the globe. We see the effects of disease and AIDS in Africa and cancer on every continent. We see this tremendous malnutrition in poor nations. It makes us want to argue with God, to demand answers, and even to raise a fist toward heaven. Here we are, 10 years after the beginning of the war in Afghanistan. I know your congregation here, like most congregations around the nation, are remembering people from this congregation who are serving in the desert, still praying. We pray every week for them. Some of you are praying every day for these people. We ask God, why? 10 years, why? Recently, we saw the devastating earthquakes and tsunamis in Japan, and We can't make any sense of that whatsoever. The earth has no will. The earth has no volition to make something like that happen. The earth cannot make something happen for good or ill. And so we call it what? An act of God. And we hold God accountable for such things. Or at least we want to. At least we ask why. And sometimes the senseless tragedies strike very, very close to home. My sister is a campus pastor in DeKalb, Illinois, not far from here. About four years ago, it was on Valentine's Day, I was driving through the town in Pasadena, California, where I live, listening to the radio, and once again I heard one of these terrible stories, one of these reports that we're so used to hearing these days, where there's been this terrible shooting on some campus in some university in North America. And my first thought was, well, once again, that's very sad. It's a long ways from here. It doesn't have a lot to do with me, but it's a very tragic event. And then when they said the name of the university, Northern Illinois University, I stopped. And I realized 
That's where my sister serves. I pulled the car over. I dialed her on my cell phone. I said, Diane, I just heard the news. What's going on? And she said, thanks for calling. I'm in the hospital right now. I can't talk. Really strikes home. Pastor John was saying that it's the 10th anniversary of 9-11. And when I think of that event and I think of this congregation, I can't help but think about the close connection you have to that. For those who were not here 10 years ago, let me remind you that as we all stood aghast watching the television that morning, watching the terror that was struck at the heart of America, as those planes came into the World Trade Center's Aboard one of those planes was your pastor, pastor of workplace ministry, Jeff Maladnik. I can only imagine the tremendous pain that it caused for you. What makes it even more insane is that the terrorists were calling out Allah Akbar, the Lord be praised, when they went about their work. The Lord be praised as they did this terrible work. And we have to ask God, why? We want to argue with God. We want to scream at God sometimes. We want to demand answers. How, oh God, can we love our neighbors when they threaten us, when they harm us, when they terrorize us, when they shoot at us? How, oh God, can we love our neighbors when they gossip about us and blame us for their misfortune and cause us so much pain? How? And why? We put God to the test. We ask God, come God now, deliver us, not just from evil, but also from silence. Tell us, O God, what is the purpose? What are the reasons? What cosmic logic is holding our lives in such delicate balance? Yes, we may challenge God. We may argue, we may dispute, we may try to trap God in blame. But in the end, we learn what the Pharisees learned in their confrontation with Jesus. God is in charge. God holds all the cards. Some of you, like me, are old enough to remember the rock opera, Jesus Christ Superstar. There's this wonderful scene in that opera where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying, arguing, struggling against God, and he sings these words, God, thy will is hard, but you hold every card. God, your will is hard, but you hold all the cards. And so, what shall we do? And what shall we say? What shall we do when we struggle and pray and bombard God with hard questions and with blame? What shall we do when we shout our questions to God and then wait in silence for an answer that sometimes never comes? What then shall we do? My friends, this is what we will do. We will love the Lord our God with all our heart, and with all our soul, and yes, with all our mind. We will do this because it is all that we can do. Loving God does not mean that we do not dispute. The God of Abraham seems to like a good debate. 
But we do this as an act, my friends. We do this as an act of love, a way of showing God our love. We turn to God in times of testing because God is God. God is in charge. God is in charge of everything in the universe, large and small, and even the puny cares of individuals like us. God is in charge of that. God has given us our hearts, our minds, our souls. When we grieve, it is God's grief we feel. When we question, it is God's logic we seek. And as loving creatures, we never seek to triumph over God in our disputes, but we test God so that in the end, God can be God for us. Let me say that again. We test God so that God can be God for us. And you know what? That's a kind of prayer. It's a very honest kind of prayer. Not the kind that acquiesces and goes along, goes along quietly with all that befalls us. It's in fact sometimes a shouting prayer, an angry prayer, even an angry fist raised toward heaven. We cry out for answers and we hold the creator of the universe responsible for all that happens with us. And it is an honest confrontation. And that, after all, is a kind of loving, isn't it? Think about our kids. We don't raise them to be mute, obliging imitations of ourselves. No, we raise them up to think for themselves, to question us, even to challenge us if they see us doing something wrong or harmful. Every good relationship requires some healthy dispute. It's a kind of love. Disputing with God is one of the clearest signs that you are very, very deeply caring about the world. So think about that now for a moment. Think about those things here today that you want to ask God about. What are those things that you want to challenge God with that make you angry, that make you outraged, that make you frustrated? What are those things in your life? They might be global things, but they might also be very personal. They might have to do with your health or someone you love. might have to do with work. Or for some of you, perhaps, lack of work. Maybe relationships or lack of relationships. Disputes with parents. Disputes with children, neighbors, co-workers. What are those things that you don't understand? That you want answers from God for? What are those things in your life that make you want to raise a fist or a finger, an accusing finger toward heaven. We all have them. And I want to tell you that we learn from our lesson that disputing with God is really not such a bad thing. God, of course, will always win the dispute, but that's actually what we need, isn't it? It's not that we want to win. We need God to win. We need God to be in charge. And we do not need to be right in our disputes with God. We need to be heard. And we need to be saved. 
And that is not something we can do on our own. Our logic cannot accomplish this. God trumps our knowledge with wisdom too great for us. God plays out the hand of our lives, and in the end, no matter how the hand goes round, he takes us to himself. He takes the trick. He brings us home. I'd like to tell you a little story about my dad. As John said, I grew up in northern Wisconsin in a a county called Lincoln County. And my dad, for 30, 35 years, was a member of the board of uh, the Lincoln County Board. So all my young life, I was always watching dad run off at night to meetings, to county board meetings. And sometimes he would come home extremely fired up from the meetings. There was always a lot of debate, a lot of disputation. And we knew that dad was in for a good night when he put on a particular sports coat. He wore this plaid sports coat that was sort of browns and oranges and really not very attractive at all. We would always sort of roll our eyes at dad when he put on this coat. He called it his arguing suit. And we knew that when dad put on that coat, he was in for a big night. Made him feel comfortable, made him feel jaunty, a little bit feisty. And away he'd go in his arguing suit. And he would argue then at the county board meeting, not because he was angry, although sometimes a little righteous indignation crept through, but sometimes he would argue simply for the sheer joy of it. He was one of those guys. He just loved to argue. But he also liked to get some good things done for the people in Lincoln County. You can imagine how difficult it was when I first brought Carol home to meet the family from California. And my dad found out that she was a California lawyer. (laughs) It was just a a nightmare. (laughs) He would dispute with her about everything and very nearly made her run off to California and never come back and leave me completely alone. But somehow, through the grace of God, it worked out, and Carol stayed with us. In the end, my dad had one long, serious argument with God, an argument which, of course, he lost. My dad thought that 75 years was too short a life for a good and an active man. He argued, as did the whole family, that God should cure him of cancer and give him another 10 or 20 years. In the end, my dad lost the most important argument of his life. Why does God do that? Why does God take a good man like Gene Schmidt or Jeff Maladnik, take them away from us? Why not leave them here to fight the good fight and to work for the good of the people, to minister to them? Why would God do that? You see, in asking that kind of question, we draw ourselves into deep conversation with God. The answer is always too far beyond us, but the one who holds the answers is not. The answer is far away, but the one to whom we are speaking is not. The God who left the cancer in my dad in spite of our arguments took him, to be away, took him away to be with God, but God remained near. And even when the answer was far off, the conversation partner, our adversary in this dispute, is attentive and near and engaged. Just as we are engaged when we argue with God, when we pray to God, when we love God with our heart, 
and soul and mind and logic and reason and questions. We pastors find ourselves standing beside a lot of hospital bedsides in our work. We watch many people and many families cling desperately to a person's thin life. And sometimes when that has happened, I've imagined that there's another group of onlookers, the angels in heaven gently urging, come on, Gene or Phyllis, come on, Art or Dawn, come on. Do not hold on so desperately to life. What awaits you is glorious beyond telling. Just let go. When you arrive, you will understand. So stop arguing with God. Breathe your final breaths of dispute and come home. My friends, if you dare to argue with God with all your heart, with all your soul and mind, if so, it is a sign of your love. I encourage it. My confirmation pastor said something very, very wise. He said to me, the perfect thing to say to a young teenage believer The opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is not caring. The opposite opposite of faith is not caring. If you care enough to raise your fist toward heaven, you will also care enough to fold those fists in prayer and go on your knees and wait for God's answers. You will also care enough to take those fists and open them in service to God's people. And this is where our disputing with God turns to our loving of our neighbors. Let me tell you this. If you argue with God, that might make you a pretty good Jew. And if you were a pretty good Jew, that might make you a very good Christian. Amen.